This week on the Saber.com podcast, good news in the transfer portal for the Virginia men's basketball program, some offensive line talk for spring football, and some final thoughts from our host, Jeff Sweatman. Let's go. The online source for the serious Wahoo fan, the Saber.com. And it is time once again for the Saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman, your host, representing the, uh, the average fans out there, or trying to anyway. And uh, we've got Chris Wright and Chris Horn of thesaber.com joining us as well, of course, with their insights on uh, football and men's basketball mainly. And uh, sometimes we just sort of go where the, where the pod takes us. And I think that's what we've got in store for you this week on the show, as there's a lot to discuss in the transfer portal. There's that word again. Chris Wright, what do you make of all of the, uh, the moving and shaking as the who's sounds like they've gotten two of the guys or the two guys at the very top of their wish list. You know, as all of this sort of unfolded, I posted on, on the message board that it may not be a home run if they got both Gardner and Franklin, but it was at least a stand up double or a triple in the alley. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> um, extremely good fits for what Virginia likes to do positions of need, top targets and multiple years available. If, if they want it. So you can't really do much better than that when you're looking to fill gaps on the roster as you lose transfers. If you're going to bring in transfers, you want guys that, that match up to what you're losing. A, Franklin kind of exchanges for Morcel and or Abdul Rahim a little bit. And then Gardner, you know, kind of plugs into the spot vacated by McCoy. So you are basically filling in the two recruiting spots as you try to plan these things out in two or four year snapshots, you filled in the two year that you lost, right? Cause those two guys were sophomores. When you planned all of that out pre pandemic, you thought, okay, we're going to have these guys through this point in time. Now you're plugging in two guys that pretty much fit neatly into those two spots. So it doesn't change your down the road recruiting very much unless you want it to by, by, you know, allowing the extra year for Franklin, et cetera, or if they want to, if they're not getting where they want to go, but it's just a neat plug and play. So I think it's, you have to look at it as an easy stand-up double at minimum <laughs> in terms of what they accomplished with, with who they brought in. Well, now in Chris Horn with Gardner, at least he, the highlights I've seen on him, he almost seems to prefer kind of that facing the basket game, as opposed to maybe the, the back to the basket big that I sort of thought he was going to be based on what I had been reading leading up to his uh, decision, you know, narrowing it down to the top five and all of that. What have you seen from him and, uh, and Franklin? Yeah, I think uh, Gardner just looking at, uh, haven't seen a whole game yet, but just looking at uh, some video here and there. Yeah. I think he, he, there is to me some Anthony Gill in there in terms of, as you mentioned, Jeff, with the face up and kind of having a preference that way. I know uh, Gill had some back to the basket type stuff. What, what I like about Gardner is he's, he's very aggressive. Uh, he seems to have good hands in traffic uh, and he's very strong in traffic, but he's not out of control. I think you'll see some, uh, some moves sprinkled in there where he, uh, you know, some pump fake sprinkled in there and things like that. So I think he's got a really good low post game, which man, if uh, UVA had, uh, you know, within that free throw line area, um, if UVA had something like that this past season with the three-point shooters they had, that would have been uh, uh, potentially pretty special. But, yeah, I think he's uh, – I, I do see some Anthony Gill. You know, I don't think he's quite as athletic as maybe like an Anthony Gill or even as athletic maybe as a as – far, as far as fluid athletic ability as like maybe a uh, Justin McCoy. So it'll be interesting defensively to see how he adapts to the pack line. But no, I think as far as scoring potential and rebounding and, you know, an area we've talked a lot about is, um, at least Chris has mentioned a lot, is free throw shooting. Average seven free throw shots per game in his uh, uh, career at East Carolina. And he makes about, uh, what, 74% or so of those shots. And one thing we've talked about is, you know, UVA being able to get scoring opportunities. They're going through a drought, you know, and, and people being able to get to the uh, free throw line. So, yeah, lots of things stand out. And, I mean, you, you, you see all, you know, Virginia being connected with a, a lot of players, but you could tell that Franklin and Gardner were guys that Virginia targeted right away. As soon as Gardner hit the transfer portal, Tony Bennett reached out, which that's a big thing. That's obviously a huge thing. 
Uh, so Coach Bennett reached out, got one of the first Zoom visits, was right in there. They were very clear that they wanted him and needed him. And he said as much since he committed. And then same, kind of same with Franklin. They went through the process of getting to know his, which was, you know, for me, extremely impressive. He's an Indianapolis kid. Uh, a lot of his teammates coming back after the hiring of Mike Woodson. I think just, uh, you know, UVA was able to, uh, you know, there's a story that you know, he's very close with his mother as well. So, you know, for Virginia to be able to kind of pull him out of that situation and convince him that UVA was the right place for him, especially in this Zoom era, uh, was, was pretty impressive. But, yeah, like, like Chris said, I think the, the staff has to be feeling pretty great about getting guys who fit what they want, uh, you know, and, and bring, bring a lot to the table as far as next year. Well, and Franklin's got some experience in the pack line defense, right? Yeah, that's one reason I think it is a extremely good fit in terms of a learning curve, if you want to look at it that way. Indiana did run pack line under Archie Miller. The nuances of it aren't 100% the same. You know, the, a lot of teams run gap defenses. Yeah. A lot of teams run the pack line version of gap defenses. It doesn't mean that everybody does everything 100% the same. And I think one thing Virginia does well is its scouting reports and how it kind of bends and melds its pack line based on what it needs or, or what it's doing. So having some experience in it though is better than no experience, right? Like knowing to be standing in a gap versus, you know, what in, in basketball lingo up the line on the line where you're directly on a passing line between the ball and who you're defending, knowing that you're sinking to a gap instead of moving toward the ball is a, an advantage. It takes a while to remember to do it. It's not hard to learn. I keep <laughs> hammering home on that on the message boards lately. This is not a mythical beast. <laughs> okay. It, it is, <laughs> it is a standard gap defense with some nuances, but it's learnable, <laughs> right? It's not something that is like getting a, a doctorate or something like that. It doesn't take, you know, four years and residency <laughs> to, to figure out the, the pack line, right? It just takes reps. Um, so to have some reps in that is good. So I think Franklin fits there. He's 6'4", you know, so that, that's similar to cell size. The, the question is always like, how do all this, how do all these pieces fit together um, in terms of point guard, shooting guard, wing, combo guard, right? You, you got all these terms that throw around. So how do all these guard pieces fit together? That, that's what's going to become interesting to watch. But Franklin definitely feel, fills in a need. He's a very good defensive player. And if you read a lot of what the, the Indiana fans were saying, they were really impressed with with Franklin, how he handled his business, how he played through an ankle injury late in the year, his ability to get his own shot, but then also that he was committed on the defensive end. And yeah, all of that translates very well to Virginia, I think. Yeah, I think Franklin is, it kind of reminds me of where, where UVA was hoping Morcel would be um, at the end of his second year. And it, it, again, I think Morcel had had plenty of chances to come in and, and, you know, I think, you know, sometimes certainly Coach Bennett can have a quick hook uh, with some players, but I think, you know, Casey Morcell definitely had an opportunity to come in his second year and really take that next step, which I, you know, I think in the time that he was given, he did, he didn't really show that uh, consistency that he needed to show, but Franklin, you see the step forwards that he, uh, the steps forward that he made from his first year at Indiana to his second year, improving in many different areas points. He went from, I think three or four per game to uh, 11 points in a, in, in a much larger role, his second year, three point shooting, shooting over 40% from three has also shown the ability to, uh, you know, create his own shot some, but also being a committed defensive player that's checks all the boxes. I think for Virginia, you can certainly see why he was a, a you know, a, a top target. And I think they did a, certainly did a great job of um, finding, I think, those right fits. And, yeah, they were able to come through and land those guys. So, obviously, that's that's great news, especially after the the way the the, the offseason started. It was kind of like, man, it was it was kind of getting a little depressing there for a while. But it's <laughs> it's turned around, I think, in the, in the last five or six days. Yeah, the only guy that would have been a better fit from Indiana is Jerome Hunter. I, I, I know nothing about Jerome Hunter. I just know he's on Indiana's roster. And – if you can get Jerome and Hunter in the same player, <laughs> Virginia fans would, would gobble that up, right? So everything's rosy when you're recruiting. So I do yeah. want to say that that these guys are not lottery picks or signing Kevin Durant from Golden State, right? Like there's there's development that needs to happen. They've got to prove um, they can do it in the ACC in Gardner's case. In Franklin's case, his number's at the rim. You know, the, the thing that people complained about all year this year, 
too many jumpers, too many jumpers, too many jumpers. Beekman needs to go to the rim more. Clark needs to finish better at the rim. Why doesn't Murphy ever put the ball on the floor, right? Franklin's numbers at the rim are not even as good as Morcells were last year in terms of shooting percentage at the rim. He's very much a, a create his own jump shot player in terms of his best percentage skills in terms of statistics. So if you kind of break it down, he's a three-level player. And what I mean by that is he took a third of his shots at the rim. He took roughly a third of his shots as two-point jumpers and a little more than a third of his shots as three-pointers. So he does create offense at all three layers, right? But his finishing percentage, shooting percentage at the rim is going to be a target area for, of improvement for him. And maybe that's one reason he wanted to come here. You know, you look at other guys, London Perantes, Devin Hall, players like that, improved their their finishing at the rim over their time here. So, but but that is kind of a target area that I circled with him, just kind of a, an area of improvement that, that will help him fit into Virginia better. I mentioned Gil. Chris, is there any guys that I know uh, the fans like to do the player comparison? Is there any past guy that he kind of maybe reminds you in terms of what you've seen so far from his game as far as former UVA Bennett players? Yeah, until I watch full games, I don't play that game. So, the, uh, so my goal is to get on ESPN three, get on YouTube and start watching a couple of full Indiana games. And then I'll rattle off some analysis on Franklin Gardner and, and Tane Murray, who's coming in. I've, uh, Chris has already pulled some links for me there to watch full games for him. So yeah, I just like to see full games and start, 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 start figuring out who you remind me the most of, but he just <laughs> needs to do his best uh, Franklin impersonation. Well, and Tane's an intriguing guy. I'm glad you mentioned him because what kind of competition has he been playing against? He has kind of a unique backstory coming from the, the part of the world that's, you know, brought us Jack Salt and, and Cody Statman. So, yeah, he's been playing, um, man, is it the NBL? He, he's been a develop what's called a developmental player on um, an, a, a, like a, I forgot exactly what the, the professional league, but it's a professional team. So he's been playing with older guys who are, you know, kind of professional players, not obviously like the NBA, but um, yeah, they, they certainly have some talented guys in there. I don't think he's gotten a, a big, huge role with those people. Again, he's a developmental player, but he's getting experience against, at least in practice, playing against uh, uh, older guys. I know he play, has played, uh, I believe, for his country. Um, you know, it's a kind of a different dynamic. They have several, uh, you know, leagues down there in New Zealand, Australia, things like that. So, and, you know, the high school competition that he played against, which he hasn't played in the, on the high school level for a while, is not not super up to par. But, again, he's he's practicing with and, and playing some with, you know, professional team. Uh, so he's getting that experience, playing against older guys. You know, he looks like he's um, improving as far as his, um, you know, muscle and, and things like that, like physically. But, you know, I think the you know, time will tell, you know, once he arrives at UVA is going to be kind of when we find out exactly where he is, I think. You know, we've had to see where he is. But, he, I mean, he definitely has kind of the, the basic skill set. He's got a nice-looking jumper. He's got good size, you know, already coming in. So it'll be interesting to see how quickly he adapts to to the game and, you know, is able to pick up things. And But, again, he's been around profession, the professional ranks, which I think is going to help him, you know, as soon as he gets to Virginia. Yeah, that guard wing stuff is a little harder to figure out because mm -hmm. there are three of them on the floor at a time, sometimes four if they're playing small ball. So a lot of moving parts. When you look at Gardner – <laughs> it's a lot easier to figure out, right? Like he's going to play a forward spot, the four, maybe a small ball five, and he's going to gobble up a whole heck of a lot of minutes. <laughs> I mean, it's, there's no way around that other than Shedrick and Kafaro currently. And I guess if you want to say, okay, Murphy comes back, Statman is healthy. Maybe those guys can play some four just because of their frame, but yeah, Gardner screams major minutes and he played major minutes at East Carolina. It's not like he, he isn't used to playing 30 plus a game. He is. It's not someone that is coming in after 15 minutes a game looking for more playing time and will have to prove it. Gardner has proven he can play those kind of minutes. So he's a lot easier to figure out um, where he's going to plug versus some of these other guys like, like uh, Tane Murray and Franklin as they come in. Well, and a guy like Franklin, like you mentioned, uh, Chris Horn there with his background and just the little bit I read about both these guys, I, I was a little leery that they were going to choose Virginia because just trying to read the tea leaves there leading up to these announcements, like you said, Franklin has those ties. Like they brought in a coach that has deep Indiana, Indianapolis and Indiana <laughs> university ties. So you thought, well, maybe he'll just, he'll return to where he, where he was. And as far as Gardner, East Carolina, you know, right down the roads, North Carolina state, I guess one of his big AAU 
teammates and buddies is already on the team. And, you know, they obviously added uh, Casey Marcel, which you, you might think he, he was talking to Casey about, well, wait a second, why <laughs> I'm getting ready to commit to UVA. Why are you leaving UVA? So it is pretty amazing that we're able to get both of those guys. So, uh, and for the folks who missed the announcement, uh, uh, McCoy is committed to UNC now, uh, Marcel to NC State, and Abdul Rahim has committed to Georgia. And they're adding like four different transfers, uh, one from USC, I guess, and uh, another guy from uh, University of Illinois, Chicago, I guess. So it will be interesting. I'll, I'll be seeing a lot of him against my Missouri Tigers down in the SEC now, I guess. So, <laughs> But I mentioned all that to say that with a guy like Franklin, getting him out of the situation he was in in Indiana, do you think there was a little bit of, I mean, these guys aren't transferring to not play. They're not transferring to sit. <laughs> so... Right. There's got to be some kind of, I mean, obviously the coach is going to say publicly, like he's got to earn his way and he's got to learn the system and all of that, but there's got to be some kind of, I mean, you can't guarantee minutes obviously, but right. what, what do you think gets said in those kind of conversations? Like Franklin's not coming here to, to ride the bench. <laughs> so, <laughs> And that's not, that, I mean, well, that's not, you know, that's Tony Bennett's way though, right? He, I mean, he lays it out that you have yeah. to be, do what you and I wonder if that maybe played a role in say like a McCoy moving on was that you know there was not still not guaranteed stuff for next year mm -hmm. um, but you know like like Chris said I think you know Gardner can see that there's a gaping <laughs> a huge uh, need you know I'm sure you know Bennett can show the guys that he's brought in who have been like you know, Mike Scott Anthony Gill uh, you know guys who have had success posts uh, who have had success in uh, in the program so that was probably pretty easy selling point and again they were it, it was also crucial I think they were they were one of the first in if not the first in uh and and spelling that out for for him from the start but I believe also you know Gardner mentioned UVA success I mean UVA's won uh, a ton of games won a national championship has won many ACC regular season uh championships under coach Bennett including this past year so I mean uh, Gardner mentioned that going to the I believe his quote was the top team in the ACC, which that says a lot <laughs> um, uh, for sure. And, you know, so, you know, that's where the success is paying off for UVA that they've had under Coach Bennett. And then, yeah, again, Franklin, I, I still think, I mean, obviously I, I think UVA was, you know, I haven't spoken with him yet, but as far as I'm sure there were many fits that he really liked about UVA that drew him out of there. It wasn't just necessarily playing time or the coaching staff or whatever, but still I'm, I'm extremely impressed that they were able to get him out of Indianapolis. Again, Indianapolis kid played at Indiana. Again, his friends are coming, like most of his friends coming back to play for coach Woodson. Yeah. Just a really good job of, you know, Virginia to put themselves in position to be able to land him, And then obviously to sell him on, on UVA. And again, I think he, he seems like he's a, a guy who likes to play both ways. And so UVA has got a lot to sell there. But again, I think just the clout that Virginia has given the success, you know, shouldn't be understated either. I think that, you know, with coach Bennett's success, developing guys, getting guys into the pros and, and all that stuff. I think uh, um, anytime you can point to that, that's going to make recruiting a lot easier. Everything we ever hear on this front is coach Bennett, his staff were really honest with me. They showed me clips of, other players in their system and how I would be used. They showed me clips compared to players in other systems and how they can blend that into their system and how I would be used. It is all very well organized, very well presented in turn. And listen, other schools do this too. I'm not saying it's special, but that Virginia does it, but Virginia is very straightforward with here's our need, right? So you take Gardner, we need a, a Ford. Here's yeah. some areas you love to face up. Well, here's, the following players facing up at Virginia, Hunter, Hauser, Diakite, Gill, Scott, all of those players are different players that were allowed to face up in different ways. And they show you kind of, here's how we might use you. Right. So there's all of that. And then if you look at, at least in Gardner's case, how many like six, eight Ford types in the Bennett era, can you think of that? Not only got a professional basketball career, whose professional basketball careers ended already. Miense is still playing. Mike Scott still playing. Isaiah Wilkins is still playing. Darion Atkins is still playing. Akil Mitchell is still playing. Obviously, Diakite is still playing. Pretty much anybody that's been in that spot has had not only a professional chance, they've been making professional money now for, for years 
for yeah. years. That's a pretty good sell for someone like Gardner that, listen, even if you don't make the NBA, because of, of how you're going to develop here and how we're going to prepare you, you're going to have a, a long professional career if it's something you want. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, for folks wondering about Walker Kessler from UNC, uh, seven foot one, first year down there who didn't play a whole lot. He had a couple of breakout games, but clearly wanted to get out of there and uh, even announced his decision to leave before Roy Williams announced his decision to retire. So he is moving on to Auburn as I think UVA was someone in the running for him, having uh, recruited him the first time around. But I um, think we're up to speed there. I guess we should talk a little Trey Murphy. Uh, I don't know if you guys want to go to the projected starting lineups for next year already, but uh, yeah, why not? Let's have a little bit of fun with that. And uh, <laughs> let's get into um, indications. Uh, officially are that Trey Murphy, as we expected, is going to, explore the NBA draft options, but not retain an agent. So he could still return to UVA, but let's just suppose he uh, is going that direction and ends up getting drafted uh, late first round, maybe somewhere in the second round. We um, could foresee that happening perhaps. And so then you look at the, the two new guys coming in and some of the, the bench players from this past year, what do you guys foresee as that that starting five for uh, for next year. All right, Mr. let, let me upset fans right off the bat here. Clark and Beekman are going to start in the backcourt, and I would be shocked if they don't. <laughs> yes. Okay, and that has been going round and round and round we go on the message yep. boards. Yeah. The only part of that that I can see maybe changing is the starting the starting question, right? The starting question this year was, we have three front court players who can all shoot the three. And we want to use them to space the floor. We have an experienced point guard already that has proven he can, can play with Huff and screen and roll. So, and, and Kihei Clark, what other piece do we need to make all of that mesh together, right? We need another player that can take advantage of space and we need a defender because we're not quite as good defensively at that. Those wing spots is typical, right? So as coaches, you look at that and go, okay, what do we do here? They tried some different things, but ultimately they settled on Beekman. And the reason is he was the best defender of the options. Walter Tensai, Morcel, et cetera. Beekman was the best defender among them at, for that other spot. So that's why he eventually settled into there. And then you start going, well, team started sagging off of them and like, oh my gosh, it was awful. And I get all of that. But through late January, Beekman was shooting 37% from three, small sample size. It was only like 17 attempts or something like that. But Virginia was scoring way up there that was three or four games where they scored in the 80s right so through late january offense wasn't the problem <laughs> right it just wasn't defense was so beekman had kind of taken that that spot because of that so now your your starting question is different in reality probably all three of those front court players are gone yeah. so we don't know that for sure with murphy we can talk about that in a minute but we don't know that that he's gone but okay they're all three gone so you may not need best defender option in that spot. So maybe that changes a little bit if, say, you feel like your best offensive players need to go there because your best, you know what I mean? There, so there's some moving parts. But until we see otherwise, and until I see the full roster, if, it, if they were trotting a starting lineup out there right now as of this minute, like season started on April the 14th uh, as we're recording this, yeah, Beekman and Clark, probably Franklin and Gardner, and then probably Shedrick. That's today. I mean, it's six yeah. months, seven months before they play a basketball <laughs> game. So, you know, I'm Murphy, ready. Let's go. <laughs> if Murphy ends up coming back, okay, yeah. Not now we get a little complicated. Who do we slide mm -hmm. out of that starting lineup? Yeah. Um, if they add somebody else, you know, so Murphy comes back and they add somebody else, or Murphy doesn't come back and they add somebody else. But as of yeah. today, based on what I think is going to happen, those would project as my starting starting five. And I know. And I can hear it. I can hear the message board churning, even though this isn't released yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> no, you can't start Clark and Beekman together. That was the root of all evil. It caused all the problems and it caused the first round loss. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. to me, that's just oversimplifying. That's not what caused anything. And there were reasons for those decisions. And I think, I think that's what you're going to see until someone can prove to me otherwise. It sounds pretty good to me. What do you think, uh, Chris Horn? Pretty good starting five there. Yeah, hopefully people didn't turn off the podcast to, uh, you know, within the first minute of Chris's answer to go to the message board to post <laughs> their displeasure with that answer. But, uh, 
no, I think that sounds right to me. I mean, there's there's you know some questions that I think Virginia to me, you know, especially with the uncertainty regarding Murphy, they need to bring in somebody else. I think uh, that would help out next year because we don't know what you know. There's some there's some talented players on the roster, but we're not sure. Like for example, obviously what. McCorkle is going to be able to bring or Tane Murray, who we uh, discussed earlier, you know, Cody Statman is a guy that, you know, maybe I'm kind of, I kind of root for the underdog, but I think, you know, he's a guy that I, I think can bring more to the table, but the question, the bigger question for me is health. He just hasn't been able to stay healthy. So, um, you know, you assume that, you know, is he, you don't even know, you don't know if he's going to be able to be healthy. So, yeah, I think there's we still have a ways to go to figure out what what next year is going to look like. But uh, but yeah, I think that sounds like for me that sounds like uh, yeah, pretty legitimate starting lineup. Um, you know, if Murphy comes back, then it gets more interesting. I think because uh, I could see obviously Murphy, Gardner, uh, Shedrick as kind of the front court there, and then do you go Clark Beekman or do you go maybe uh, Clark? Uh, or Franklin with Beekman off the bench or, you know, how, how does that work uh, heading into next season? So it'll be interesting, you know, as far as, you know, looking at Kihei Clark again, you know, surprisingly toward the end of the end of the year kind of was that he was more tentative with his shot. I think obviously he lost confidence in his shot. Hopefully he gets that back. Cause if, if he doesn't get that back, you know, that shooting touch uh, when he's open, then, then I wonder what, what happens with there, because I think you could easily, you know, go with Beekman over, over Clark, even though Clark is obviously uh, still an important part of the team. But I think he definitely, you know, that, that was an area where, you know, he seemed to do pretty well as a sophomore, but this past season really struggled with in terms of being able to make the open shot. And I think that's something that he's got to be able to do. And Bigman as well. He is, certainly has to improve his his offense. But, you know, they're also, you know, both great defenders, which is uh, first and foremost. But, yeah, Chris is uh, – uh, yeah, I like Chris's answer. I think that's what I would go with as well right now. Well, and you guys were talking about the um, the tape or whatever that that Tony and the the recruiting uh, staff and the coaches play for the recruits coming in in terms of where the new player could potentially fit into what UVA does and some things that they might uh, need to work on or whatever in their own games. Does that happen with? I mean, I, it does happen with all of these guys. But at what point is it immediately following the season that they kind of give these guys like, here's your summer. Uh, summer project or your summer homework to you need to work on this, this, and this, or does it kind of, is it a just week by week process or do that? You know, this has been such a weird year this past year where they, these guys, I assume haven't really been able to see their families much, if at all. So you would think there'd be some breathing room there to kind of go back, see your family, do, do what you might've normally done during the summer. Maybe talk about that a little bit. Uh, Chris Wright, you kind of know the, the process there for these guys. Yeah, I mean, exit meetings happen almost immediately inside of two weeks. And even two weeks is a bit long. <laughs> it, it really does happen pretty quickly. I don't know how much video is chopped up for that meeting because they're getting chopped up video all year long mm -hmm. um, once you're in the program. So even practices, right? Even practices get chopped up. So they, they've seen and heard feedback from video standpoint once they're in the program pretty much constantly. Yeah. What they do get, you know, they get the the, the talk about, okay, you know, what, what do we see your role potentially next year, here's where your development curve is, all those sort of things. But then also sort of like index card kind of vibe. I'm not saying it's a literal index card, but that kind of vibe where there's a few things mm -hmm. uh, that they want you to, to work on the most, you know, kind of attack these areas the most. And it's not always a weakness, by the way. It's not always, you need to go improve your left-handed layup. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Sometimes it's um, continue to strengthen your pull-up game. You know what yeah. I mean? Like create pull-ups in different situations, that kind of thing. So it can be building on a strength as well. But yeah, all of that happens pretty much immediately. And that's in part just because how the college basketball calendar works. Typically, you know, the season's over that first week of April and typically recruiting open periods are in late April. <laughs> now, right now that's different um, in terms of what's allowed because of the pandemic. But typically they're on the road uh, right around now starting to look for the next generation of people. So you want guys to know as they exit their season, kind of where they stand so they can make decisions, particularly with the transfer portal, the way it is and immediate eligibility right now. So yeah, all of that happens pretty much instantly in terms of the end of the season. And then guys start making decisions and you know, that takes a while. The transfer portal doesn't have a deadline. Whereas declaring for the NBA draft does, <laughs> you have to declare by May the 31st 
um, this year. So, and it's usually earlier when, when the draft is earlier, but the, the NBA calendar is a little off as well. So yeah, a little different this year, but that happens pretty much immediately. Chris Horn, what do you think in terms of, you know, those guys, we talked a little bit about Kihei, what he, he might need to improve, I guess, Reece Speakman. I thought pretty much all year long, he seemed to be able to, to get by most of, of his defenders. That was an encouraging thing, I think, for, for his offensive game that maybe we'll see more of next year. Yeah, I think uh, for him, jump shot certainly comes to mind. I mean, yeah, I was um, to get back to Chris's point about uh, Reese's defense. I mean, his defense to me, if you you watch the uh, Ohio game, just the Ohio game, I mean, it's a phenomenal on-ball defender. I mean, I think he's got a, a world of potential defensively. Yeah, I think certainly just fit basic, just you know, shooting. I think you know because guys, he was. He and Clark were both left wide open uh, toward the end of the season, which was, uh, I think, really clogged up the the offense because the UVA couldn't get the consistent production that they needed uh, to kind of kind of offset and kind of dissuade teams from doing that. So clearly, you know, being able to knock down the outside shot is something I'm sure that's going to be high on his list. But also, you know, even if he just had, uh, you know, a runner or a mid-range jumper or something like that, with his ability to get to the basket, just uh, just being able to finish as well. So those are it's certainly the offensive end, I think, is his kind of main uh, uh, main areas of focus this offseason. Well, the message boards have been uh, all abuzz with Trey Murphy discussion. Uh, what have folks been saying? And, and we've talked uh, a lot about his pros and cons and, and the decision he'll be facing. But um, how do you think it all kind of shakes down with him? Yeah, I think I touched on it a little bit last week, but there's a lot of, he, he can improve, he can make it to the lottery, he can, <laughs> that type of chatter going on. Kind of thinking of it from that standpoint, I'm not sure he ever can get all the way to the lottery. And I'm not trying to be rude. It's just, those are the top 13, 15 picks. I, I just don't know if he's ever a top 15 pick. <laughs> he, maybe. And if he gets to that point, then, then hat tip, right? That means, A, you had an incredible year development wise and that means virginia had a great year frankly because if he does that virginia that means he came back and virginia was really good right so it's not like i would be rooting against that i just don't see that in his skill set currently i think you could see a little bit of the potential for deandre hunter to be a top 20 pick when he came back so that's a little bit different comparison to me murphy is not the same kind of physical player going to the rim that that hunter was he cannot absorb while dribbling and still go finish as of right now. Okay. So that's why I don't see that as a lottery pick. Again, if, if he comes back and proves me wrong, that's awesome. That's not a bad thing. So um, I see back end of the teens, early twenties is kind of his ceiling. So if, if I'm looking at it from that standpoint and I'm Murphy, I'm going, okay, I'm not gaining that much unless I fall into the 50s, 60s undrafted territory. And even that may not be that bad. Remember, Diakite actually didn't get drafted, <laughs> which right now, a year later, is looking really stupid. You yes. know what I mean? So, Yeah, I couldn't believe that. It's, it's not the end of the world if he doesn't get drafted. He's really somewhere in the 30 to 50 range, it sounds like, based on some mock drafts, kind of what the feel for it is, et cetera. And I know some people are having a hard time wrapping their brain around that. Is, how is he a top 30 to 50 pick? Listen, the NBA is a space league. It is a versatile defender league. So when you look at, at Trey Murphy, you go, okay, 6'9", guarded smaller defenders uh, before his growth spurt, still able to guard those guys now, and can also guard wings. So he is a switchable guy defensively. Long ways to go. <laughs> He's not a shutdown defender right now, but that's not a deterrent when you're looking at, at a draft pick. That's a deterrent when you're looking at a rotation player but you're not making a draft pick to make him a rotation player between 30 and 50. You're, you're drafting what you think he can become. And I think he can become a switchable defender. The other reason he's getting drafted, he can flat out shoot. Okay. So I agree. He, I just said, he can't get to the, the basket using the dribble physically like Hunter could. He did not show the ability even to take one or two dribbles and pull up in terms of an offensive player, but you know what he does really, really well spot up and shoot. <laughs> He's really good at it. 40 plus percent, two out of his three years in college. He's got a six, nine frame that that's a high release, even though he releases a little bit lower than some, that's still just a low release for a six, nine player is still a pretty high release. Right. So it's, he's really, really good at one skill. So that is a, an attractive quality for the NBA. He has taken 69.7% of his shots 
from behind the three-point line in college. This is a specialist, right? I know we want to project Murphy as this, that, and the other, and this is what he could be. I'm not interested in potential necessarily if I'm, if I'm looking at it as a specialist. If I'm a GM going, I want a guy that can do this. He can do this. <laughs> you know you know that. You've seen it. 70% of his shots at a 40% success rate, that's worth a draft pick because you think you can turn him into a defensive guy. Yeah, I just don't think it's that hard of a decision. The, the hard part to me is if you don't think you're in the 30s, it starts getting a little trickier. You know, 40 through 60, the guaranteed contract money, it's still there. Guys are still getting guaranteed contracts the last three or four drafts, even after pick 40. But the money is not as good. There's a lot more two-way contracts in that area. Yeah, it just gets a lot more complicated. And then your second contract comes into play too. So career earnings, right? If you could get into the 22nd pick, 23rd pick, that range a year from now, you know, Ty Jerome, Justin Anderson territory, your, your starting point of earnings is better, but they also don't have as much patience with you. So yeah, it's, it, this is a hard one. It's a hard one because it's hard to project what contract number two is going to look like. And then there's also this, if you're pick 20 something, you're basically locked into a five-year contract, meaning the first two years are guaranteed. The third year is a team option. The fourth year is a, I think, player option. And then the fifth year is a qualifying offer type of deal where you can match. So that's five years. If you go in the second round, you're really usually only locked up for two years. So if you go play really well for two years, maybe you can change your earnings differently than you could if, if you were picked, even though your money is better if you were picked higher. So this is a complicated equation. It's not just, if you're a first round pick, you should go. And if you're a second round pick, you shouldn't. Right. Yeah. Th those days are over. Yeah. <laughs> those days are over. It's a lot more nuanced than that. Well, as you were saying that, Chris, I was thinking of a guy like Duncan Robinson. I mean, he's a specialist for the Miami heat and he's in the starting lineup for, you know, a team that went to the finals this past year and he's, he's six, seven. I thought he was a little taller than that. So uh, that might be uh, the type of role that, um, Trey Murphy finds himself in uh, eventually, but um, yeah, Chris Horn, what's your take on the consensus at this point, I guess? <laughs> well, I, well, I think back-to-back -back weeks, Chris made it make sense for me. So, cause Chris is the more of the NBA guy. I'm not, I admittedly do not watch a whole lot of NBA basketball, but when you frame it like that, as far as being a specialist, yeah, and it's almost like, okay, well, that's kind of a no brainer, but cause my thought, and again, with the background of, I think if he goes pro, I think, you know, everybody, you know, it's his decision, support him. I think, uh, and I think UVA fans are pretty good at that generally, but I can also understand how people don't understand because I'm kind of, fit, I fit into that category. Whereas when we're, we're talking about with his ball handling ability specifically, like I think the defense, you know, I think he was kind of up and down this past year defensively, but I think that's something he can definitely improve. Like, especially, you know, as he gets stronger, he's got the athletic ability, he's got the length, he's got you know, all, all that he needs to, I think, become a pretty good defender on the next level. But I think, you know, that being said, staying at Virginia, that would, wouldn't hurt him in that category uh, one more year. But as far as the ball handling aspect, you know, we saw towards the end of the season that, you know, UVA would isolate him on the elbow and he, he did uh, a few things, but not much. And to me, when he had the ball and he was crowded, and I think Coach Bennett has mentioned this as far as, you know, uh, just his ability in space is something that he can improve upon, or at least he alluded to it um, uh, on his coaches show and things like that. You know, Trey just didn't look really comfortable at all to me when guys are right there in his face, like he wasn't able to do, do much. Um, and I think that's certainly an area where I could see, you know, if he were to come back that, you know, we, you know, we didn't see that much, whether or not that means he can actually improve that, I'm not sure. Maybe he can't. But I, I would think that would be something that he could improve upon if he could. That could, you know, again, like Chris said, I'm not sure if lottery would be in the conversation, but I think he definitely could improve that. And then, you know, maybe which may help him be more prepared for the NBA, you know, that next level. Because I think coming back playing in the ACC, obviously great competition, but it's not going to be like what he's going to be facing, I would suspect, even in the G League with, you know, everybody's competing for a job, you know. So, but anyway, so that that, that was my major question was that he not only did he, did he not really show much as far as being able to dribble the basketball, get to the basket, uh, drive through contact, things like that, is he just didn't look very comfortable doing it. And I wonder how, I was wondering kind of aloud how that's going to, 
play out as far as in GM's mind. But then when, you know, when Chris mentioned the the kind of specialist type deal, that kind of makes more sense as well. So for me, it's just going to be interesting to see what feedback he gets in, in, in all this NBA draft process coming up. And I'm not rooting for him to leave by saying that. It would be better for Virginia if he comes back. <laughs> I think he would get better if he comes back. I don't think it's a risk in, in that sense to come back. He's also going to get better if he goes to a professional basketball organization. <laughs> That's what they do. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he, he's going to get better either way. The Gardner part complicates it a little bit because, listen, if you're Virginia and you're trying to win games at Virginia, do you isolate Gardner in the elbow area or do you isolate Murphy in the elbow area? When you start making those decisions, it's no longer about potential. It's about production. And only one of those two guys has proven he can produce as a face-up player in that area so far in college. So Gardner's going to get the nod there, at least initially. He may not even get to show that that much if he were to come back, because it's about how do you put the pieces together to win games, not how do you put pieces together to showcase whoever. That's not how it works. And listen, one reason he doesn't do that this past year, Hauser's better at it than him currently. So you're going to put Hauser in those mid-post situations before you're going to put Murphy there. Yeah, I've got Duncan Robinson's stats pulled up here just because I, w- I was looking him up real fast as you guys were talking. And, and you know, 687 field goals last year, 606 of those were three-pointers. <laughs> He's about the same percentage this year. Just incredible. So talking about specialists, he, he doesn't ever drive to the basket. Everyone knows that. And yet... <laughs> That's what he does, and he's really good at it. 42%, I guess, for his career. So having to diversify games overrated, is, I guess, is what I'm, I'm telling you guys. No, but one thing I did want to mention, that average fans and you know people posting things and, and ranting online sometimes maybe don't consider is, I mean, look, if you were that guy, what would you do? You know, you could come back, even if you really wanted to come back to Virginia, you get injured, something happens, you just never know. And then you're, you're costing yourself potentially what could have been uh, an extra year or two in the pro rank. So things like that obviously are part of the decision as well. But one quick mention, uh, Chris Horn, back to you for the Isaac squared possibilities. There's another <laughs> Isaac in the mix who's coming to visit soon, I guess, right? For the uh, two years from now class. Yes, Isaac uh, McNeely is the guard commit out of uh, West Virginia. So first of all, just to touch on him, his uh, high school team, they're about to start. They had a little COVID pause to end of the season, unfortunately, but it sounds like they'll be fine or expecting them to be fine for the playoffs. So, um, yeah, he's been on a tear. I think he's averaged uh, over the past three games, 33 points a game or something like that, shooting lights out. <clears throat> and, yeah, he's been all over social media. He's definitely a who. Uh, through and through you can tell he's uh, excited to get to Virginia I've seen people have been asking if he could possibly reclassify and come early but you know he attends a regular high school I don't think you see that typically as much from regular high school attendees as you do say like a prep school mm-hmm. where they seem like they reclassify all the time so it's kind of hard to keep up sometimes so I gotcha. would expect him to stay in the class 2022 um, but yeah Isaac Trout out of Nebraska is a uh, uh, you know, with the dead period hopefully coming to an end, um, uh, May 31st, that's going to open up um, the ability for prospects to take official visits. Um, and he had told me uh, when I interviewed him last month that he wanted to take Virginia was one of a, the schools he definitely wanted to visit. Um, uh, and he is following through on that. So he's, he's looking like he's going to take an official looks like he's eyeing June 11th through the 13th or so. Um, it's not set in stone just yet but uh that's what that's what he's looking like and he's uh you know for those who don't know a lot about him he's six nine um he can score uh inside and out um uh yeah virginia offered him back in january he's also got kansas he recently got uh, michigan state actually just yesterday offered him and they have been watching him for a while so there's a lot of top competition but uva's uh made an impression yeah there's the isaac squared isaac mcneely is uh um, yeah, I think those guys have a pretty good, pretty good friendship, even though obviously they live pretty far away, but they've developed a solid friendship. But one thing that kind of I mentioned earlier with, um, you know, recruiting Armand Franklin and Franklin mentioned this in his quote to VirginiaSports.com was the family aspect and that it seems like, you know, I'm sure this is not unique only to Virginia, but they do a good job of reaching out, not just to the player, but to the high school coach, to the AAU coach, to the family, talking to the family. So it's a, it's a pretty um, you know, detailed operation. And Isaac Trout mentioned this. His high school coach actually told me that UVA was one of the only schools that he's talked to. 
that um, I think a lot of schools tend to go through AAU or whatever, uh, mostly, but um, UVA, and that's what he appreciated. And I think that's kind of resonated with Isaac that Bennett and company have gotten a chance to know his family and him. And he thinks he'd be a good fit at UVA as well. So that's obviously a good, good thing. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, follow his recruitment. He wants to visit a slew of schools right away. So it sounds like he maybe wants to get this uh, recruitment kind of behind him. Uh, so, you know, that'll be a big weekend for UVA if, if maybe UVA can seal the deal there or not. But, yeah, definitely, definitely some competition. But, yeah, skilled, skilled 6'9", big. Um, yeah, UVA would love to have Isaac squared, I think, if, uh, if they can make it happen. Nice. The marketing opportunities are endless. And by that time, they'll, they'll have all of this, you know, name yeah, and good, good point. rights and likeness all, <laughs> all sorted out, right? It'll be, it won't drag on for, you know, years and years. <laughs> anyway, well, uh, that's why we love the insight here from the experts at thesaber.com. Podcast continues with a little football talk next. It's your number one online source as a Virginia fan, thesaber.com. And we're back on the Saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman joined by Chris Horn and Chris Wright. And guys, let's talk a little football. You've had a chance to get some insights from the coaches and um, in the past few days. How about offensive line talk? What are you hearing on uh, uh, as far as that position group goes? Yeah, this is an interesting time for Virginia because suddenly they have a really, really old offensive line <laughs> across the board, not – one guy that's old, everybody's old, um, over a hundred combined starts returning. And coach Tuajay was asked if, if he'd ever have that, he was like, absolutely not. <laughs> um, and I'd have to look back to look at his offensive lines to see if it's even been close. But when you have multiple guys who have started 30 plus games, having a couple of those is not uncommon in college. Cause that seems to happen where you get kind of a couple anchors and a couple young guys coming up. Those anchors leave. The young guys are now the anchors. Having a couple with 30-plus starts, not unusual. Having four, five guys with, with that many starts is. And really the only guy up front that hasn't kind of hit the 30s, I think, is Bissinger, who started taking over for Dylan Rinkensmeyer late last year. Everybody else, Ryan Nelson, 37 starts, I think it is. Uh, Oluwatimi, 30-plus starts. He's going into his third year as a, as a starting center. Chris Glazer way up there and starts. So you're looking at three or four guys who, yeah, who've started a ton of games and, and that's a different starting point for a football team building an offense because you're not saying, Hey, um, I need you to learn how to pass block this play and run block that play and remember this technique and don't forget your hands and be careful with your, your open step. And, (laughs) you know, you can go, Hey, um, remember blue laser 42 Z or something. And they go, yep, got you. <laughs> and, they, and they just go do it. That's a very different starting point. And it's a different development point too, because now not only do you have the coach, coach to kind of spreading the information across 15 or 20 guys, which is a lot of guys to coach when you have a lot of moving parts at once. This is not like quarterback where one guy is playing that play where coach Beck is going, all right, Brennan, here's what you did on that play. You've got five guys. Coach Tuajay said it's like having four graduate assistants out on the field. So when you do have the second unit in there, you can say, hey, Ryan Nelson, watch so-and-so at left guard and help him out while I watch right guard and help him. Or Chris Grazer, watch right guard and talk to him about that one snap or those two or three snaps, and I'm going to deal with the center this time or whatever. It's a huge advantage in terms of the trickle-down effect of, of what it could mean for your team. Yeah, I think, uh, well, they have, you know, obviously the starters uh, in place, but they have some depth. Bobby Haskins, it sounds like he's fully healthy. I know last year he was battling back from some injuries, but he's a guy who's got a lot of experience as a tackle. He can play both spots, I believe. So he's, he, you know, you add that in. And then it's, it's going to be interesting because I think they're in the ideal spot for, you know, the succession planning, which is what Coach Mendenhall has discussed from the time he got here is what he wants at each position. That is, when these guys move on, the next crop is ready to step right in and, and continue that. So it'll be interesting to see how they use. I mean, obviously these guys are going to be the the starting point um, uh, and, and play most of the minutes, but will they, you know, also try to kind of weave in some of these guys who are, you know, coming up in the, in, in the program uh, who maybe haven't played as much, but, you know, have been in the program for a couple of years and like a, like a Jonathan Leach or like a Justice Johnson, who's coming in as a, his second year. So that's going to be interesting for me. And then also what is kind of the ceiling for this group, this group, like what's the upside um, last year, they were good, but I certainly think they, you know, they can, 
hopefully stay, take another step forward to so Virginia can take pressure off of uh, Brennan Armstrong by you know establishing a tr- more traditional type run game. I think having you know a dominant offensive line uh, certainly helps with that. You know, can this group be dominant? Uh, well, that's one thing. Obviously, we'll have to find out this coming season. The ceiling question is interesting. I can tell you what the goal is, or, or actually, let's let Olu tell us what the goal is. You know, it, it, here's what he said that the offensive line has, is targeting. Uh, we have a chance to, to be the best unit in the country, honestly. Um, we, we, we have that confidence and we have that swagger, and we're just trying to live up to, to everything that, you know, all the media and all what our coaches put on us. I mean, at the end of the day, we got to earn it and we got to grind to get there because each year you start anew. So we're just trying to grind and, and, and really trying to just be the best unit in the country. Well, and I'm looking at the national rankings here, guys. Uh, looks like if you go by yards per game, Virginia at number 41 in the country and 46th in terms of points, averaging 30.7. I took Kent State out of the uh, equation because they only played four games. They were basically the number one <laughs> offense, I guess, if you go by the metric. 606 yards a game for the Kent State Golden Flashes. But uh, anyway. And, and Virginia, if you break those yards out, yeah, it was the rushing yards that were not quite as consistent. And that is one area that the offensive line talked a lot about, you know, like how can we improve the traditional running game? That's something that, that Mendenhall had brought up in his pre-spring, his kind of kickoff press conference. So the offensive line was getting asked a lot about it. You know, how how can you improve the traditional running game? And Ryan Nelson was like, listen, we got a lot of talented guys back there. (laughs) You know, that that's part of it. You have confidence as an offensive line that no matter who's in, that all of them are talented blockers and all of them are talented carriers. And that, that balance has not always been there so far in the Mendenhall era. You might have a guy that's that good at carrying and not blocking or good at blocking and not carrying or good at third down back, but not every down back. The way Nelson was describing it, he thinks the guys in there right now can all be any of those things. So that, that gives the offensive line confidence. The other thing that, that Tua J brought up was it changes your blocking slightly. If you don't run the quarterback, you have one less blocker. So the secondary level. So you're gonna your primary blocks are basically going to be the same. But can your line seal that up so that the lead blocker can then go get the first secondary defender? Or can you chip with an offensive lineman and have him climb to the second level and get that first secondary level uh, run defender? So it does change things a little bit there. But having an offensive line that's experienced allows you to kind of to, to dive into those details a little bit, but that is kind of a target. Can they make the running backs more productive, which would make those total yards you were just talking about go up in theory. Ideally you want kind of um, the same level of expertise across the line. Do you, do you see UVA favoring one side or the other necessarily? Uh, you know, if you're, you're stronger in one direction, you probably need to run more that way. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think uh, you know I'm trying to re- uh, recall exactly who who played what this past season, but yeah, I mean I think clearly Glazer I think had his best season last year as as a guard. So um, I think either you know the guys playing tackle Nelson it, it, to me is good. Um, I think Swoboda who who Chris talked up last year really took a a step for, a significant step forward last year. So yeah, that's going to be interesting. I would say. Uh, at this point, whichever side Glazer's on, maybe that might be the preferred uh, preferred spot or going like kind of uh, right at the middle behind Oluwatimi. But, you know, Bissinger, I think, is a guy that he's now he's got experience as, you know, the next step for him, I guess. Like how productive can he be uh, this coming season as well? He's kind of the not quite as experienced guy as the other guys on the line. Well, are there certain plays in the, the arsenal that you guys have seen, especially in the past year, I guess, that you look forward to seeing more of or less of I'm thinking of those, you know, first down draw plays that never seem to gain anything <laughs> that fire up the message boards from time to time. And that, um, that's, that's an area that, that I need or, or reporters need to ask the coaches a little bit is it seems like your running backs get a gap carries a lot. Yeah. Is varying their, I guess, landmark or their attack point different in other words, is it allowed to to go to different places? And is that somewhere you can gain in the traditional running game? Do you have the personnel for maybe more than A-gap carries? And if you break it down, I'd have to look at pro football focus to know the exact numbers. A lot of them come 
you know, between center and guard or between guard and tackle. They're rarely perimeter runs. You know what I mean? Those are almost all quarterback runs or end around runs or, or that sort of thing. So does varying where the running backs run perhaps improve the production or at least what's the thought process behind it? That's not a question I've ever asked the coaches. So that's a, a good one to kind of see it, see if they will, they will give us a little information on. Sometimes they'll go, well, you know, you have to figure that out yourself. Sometimes they're a little <laughs> guarded with it. Um, so, so we'll see, but that's one area that fans, like you just said, get a little caught on is like, why it's always a first down, whatever. <laughs> and it's always between the yeah. tackles, that sort of thing. So it'll be interesting to see if that part evolves or is that just the scheme and they have to be better yeah. at it in order to get better production out of it. Very good. Well, we'll keep our in-depth analysis up in the weeks to come as EVA football season going to be right around the corner. So up next, uh, soliloquy, if you will, I'm going to go back to uh, something I talked about a couple of weeks ago. So it's not brand new news, but I did add a little bit of a transfer portal spin to it. So we'll get to that next here on the Saber.com podcast. The Front Porch is a nonprofit roots music organization, and we uh, connect everyone through music. I like the way that the Front Porch encourages people to, to sort of engage with their community and sort of enlarge the community. Everybody is included, and that's really what the word community is about, you know, making sure that everybody has their chance to have a good time and, and participate and add something. All right, welcome back. Saber editor Chris Wright in the driver's seat for our final segment. Uh, we named this the Turning the Table segment way back at the start of the podcast as we are rumbling toward the 40s. We're in the high 30s now on, on episode count. So now we've kind of switched it lately to ranting neighbor segment or something like that. So <laughs> get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll let Jeff uh, kind of say, say what's on his mind. Into rant. That's what I was thinking of since it's sort of ending the, uh, the show here. But I, I was seeing a lot of posts in various places, kind of on both sides of the, you know, people kind of going after uh, certain aspects of Tony Bennett's coaching style or, or teams that, that he's had and maybe the NCAA success or lack thereof. So I thought I would take that on this week. And uh, I would just say that once upon a time, Coach K couldn't win the big one. Took him four years to get ranked. Five to have a winning ACC record. 11 to win a title after losing by 30 the year before in the title game. Jim Beheim was great in the Big East regular season, but he was known for choking in the tournament. Richmond Spiders, anybody? He, uh, thanks to some guy named Carmelo, along with Calipari, Izzo, and Self, they've only won one title each and all with the highly ranked talent they have every single year. Gonzaga's only made the Final Four twice. Mark Few has made 21 straight big dances but he's now 0-8 versus number one seeds in the tournament. And that's not really a small sample size anymore. Although that does give you an idea of how many early exits they have in the Gonzaga program, only playing eight number ones in 21 years. Who knows? They might've won it all last year, or maybe Baylor would have gone back to back, winning six games in a row over three weekends versus mostly great teams after a grueling, some years more than others, <clears throat> ACC regular season is very difficult and that's why the Izzos and Patinos and Selfs and Old Roys are deified by the media because they win two or three March games most every year, except this year, and get to the Sweet 16. We all love the Who's, regardless of our viewpoints, right? So uh, that love, that deep-seated uh, love and passion for the program, especially under the leadership on and off the court of this particular coach, I think Sweet 16 level is where we all feel like UVA should be at this point with all the regular season success. CTB made a Sweet 16 with Washington State, for crying out loud. We've learned from CTB what beautiful basketball looks like, efficient offense, suffocating D. I can barely watch my beloved Missouri Tigers anymore because they're a shell of a, a once-proud program. And then this year, at least at the start, I started to believe again because I saw those hallmarks of, of Tony Bennett's great teams, led by a hunger on the defensive end and a toughness to come through in those late-game moments when not everything is going to go your way. Jay Wright of Villanova, by far the most comparable current coach to Tony Bennett in terms of combined ethics and success and movie star good looks. Used to be seen as a guy who was great, but he couldn't get it done in March until he did. Then they lost in the second round the following year, then won the whole thing again, and then lost in the second round again. UVA was top four preseason this year and then got a four seed, which means they were a projected Sweet 16 team. 
and it's ridiculous to expect to win the title every year. This is among the many reasons why the Blue Bloods and their fans are so annoying. But I don't think it's that unreasonable at this stage, the program and modern college basketball to expect sweet 16s and be kind of mad and disappointed when we don't get there. I'm sure as competitive as we all know C2B to be, he ain't exactly thrilled either, especially since the national narrative will remain in place for another year about our style of play and how fluky the final four run was with three miracle finishes, et cetera. And oh, by the way, Coach K started at Duke in 1980. He ain't getting any younger. Same with old Roy at UNC, who has since retired since I wrote this, and uh, Jim Beheim. So who are those programs going to find to follow in their footsteps? And who would you rather have Coach UVA now? Anybody? Shaka? He's had five straight first round exits and a couple of missed tourneys along the way while he was at Texas. And, you know, we probably won't have Tony 30 more years like Duke has had Coach K, but however long he decides to stay here, he's already put UVA among the greatest programs of all time. And how the heck does anybody recruit against Duke and UNC and Kansas and Kentucky and Villanova anyway, let alone when two of those three are in your same conference, let alone when your self-imposed academic and character goalposts are so high? UCLA's coach was just griping during their magical tournament run this year from the first four to the final four about how they lost a recruit to the G League and their UCLA. Also, regarding recruits, we've lost two high-level assistant coaches who are good enough to be leading their own teams now. And the same goes for transfers during this portal bonanza. You can wish those departed who's well and at the same time root against them when NC State or UNC comes to town. I love griping as much as anyone, but believe me, as a native Midwesterner, whose home state school, Illinois, has never won a title, and whose alma mater, Mizzou, has never even made the Final Four. I married into this Whoville, by the way. Enjoy the ride, folks. And with that, we'll remind you to like and subscribe and share the Saber.com podcast. Thanks for listening.